Woo! Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's freaking Tuesday. <laughs> and we just made an important discovery in our lives. Addie Dog now knows the word podcast. Yeah, she really does. As soon as you said that word, so we record the podcast upstairs, and Meg- Megan says the word, Addie just sprints upstairs as fast as she possibly can and jumps on the couch, the futon, right next to the recording, our little recording studio. Very interesting. I wonder how she got that positively re- reinforced and if she's an absolute genius. I, I think both. I'm going, I'm going with both there. But it's different than her usual behavior. So her usual behavior, she goes outside and runs and yeah. zoomies and has so much energy far beyond the life of the nine-year-old dog that she is. And then when she gets inside, she basically doesn't move the entire day, except for a very few specific situations, probably like food crinkling in the bag, the UPFs driver. And then when we kiss, actually, she gets very, she's like, guys, I must be in the middle of you guys in this moment. She really does love love, like especially our love to an extent that is a little bit creepy. What do you think is up with that? I agree about the creepy nature of it. Yeah. Recently, we've just been like, Addie, nope. It's yeah. the only time we tell that to her. Like, we're exceedingly affirmatory dog owners, yeah, except yeah. when it comes to that situation, because we're like, uh, nope. Yeah, we've had to close the bedroom door sometimes because she just gets so intense and it's gotten way more intense with age. And I wonder what it is exactly, like if it's a chemical thing or if it's just like, this is love happening. I must be involved. Or if she's just a little bit of a freak. Do you think she's a freak? I don't know. I don't know. But I think it gets back. Actually, we talked a couple episodes about the inverted U of happiness. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's almost like an inverted U of, of love in some ways where yeah. as you get older, Addie is like, I'm just going to let it fly. I'm <laughs> so in love with you guys. And I'm going to, I'm just going to let rip well eventually we're just going to be coming home and Addie is going to be on the bed and she's going to be sitting in that you know position where dogs are on their back with their legs open like scratch my belly without us even being she's gonna be like, hi guys paint me like one of your french girls i was just gonna use that joke you have <laughs> so that is like a wild moment in our relationship i think we've used that joke a few times before yeah. and I, I was gonna go there but you stole it i think we have like a narrow body of references which will be really interesting when we do get to podcast episode like 400 or something because the people that listen from the beginning are probably gonna be hearing repeats in fact we've been getting a lot of emails from people recently that are saying I just discovered your podcast. I've binged it over the course of a week and they've heard every single episode. And that kind of horrifies me because as I start to repeat stories, this is going to be so fresh in their brains. Like nothing new will ever happen after probably episode 100 or that's, so. That's very true. Well, also too, we have a bunch of foreign listeners and a lot of the references we give or a lot of like the jokes that we make yeah. are based off of like, I don't know, US-based idioms or references or things it's like that. Culture, culture, culture too. So I imagine we're also, I feel like that sometimes when I listen to podcasts, like growing up, I never listened to like, or never watched movies or like engaged in a lot of like popular culture but i've learned it from like reading books and listening to podcasts so maybe maybe we're just educating people with the weird the weird ass references that we get <laughs> yeah i feel like uh maybe it's just like a very specific nature and time because it's also looking at the stats and i saw so many of our listeners are 28 to 34 years old it's something like 40 percent of our total listenership which is like oh maybe that does get back to like the references to 90s music and or, or like ludicrous and stuff like i feel like if you like ludicrous you like this podcast and if you don't hopefully we can also be inclusive to even people that don't like ludicrous though you are i'm not sure if i feel good about you you are the true freaks out there (laughs) is not liking ludicrous (laughs) um but yeah so great news 
you're back on the bike. I'm on a bike. It feels so good. Actually, yesterday I was out riding and you know the, Lon the Lonely Island song, I'm on a boat? Yeah. I only know like one lyric from it, which is I'm on a boat. And so yesterday, the entire time I was just like, I'm on a bike. <laughs> and I was feeling the Lonely Island lyrics, not knowing what else comes in the song. But it was like so empowering and so amazing. I actually, I mean, I feel like I've just reset my dopamine levels yeah. to zero to the point where I'm out riding at like 12 and a half miles an hour. And I'm like, I'm flying. <laughs> <laughs> this feels so good. She's on a bike, motherfuckers. Don't you ever forget. I think that's one of the lyrics. That is. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, I could go through the whole lyrics here if we really wanted to, but we might lose some of our freak listeners out there. Um, but yeah, I actually came up behind you when I was driving the other day. So you had no idea I was there. And I just saw you. It looked like you were totally jamming out in your own world of joy. Um, and that was very exciting for me because it's been a long journey with your heart concerns. And um, now you're getting to come back a little little by little. And, you know, getting to move around on the bike is really must feel super fast and exciting in ways that like, you know, as great as hiking is, it's slower than biking slowly. <laughs> it feels, I mean, I can cover ground still. And that's the cool thing. So I've been playing a little game on the bike. It's like, how many woohoos and how many hills can I cover under <laughs> 120 heart rate? And fortunately, my bike has, I call my bike Cookie Monster. Yeah. Cookie Monster has a wide array of gearing and it allows me to get up a lot of things under 120 heart rate. And it's fantastic. But I mean, it's it's a fun game to play. That being said, I had like four people that biked by me yeah. this weekend that said to me, are you, are you okay? Oh, no. And I think it's because my bike looks pretty sweet i have a nice like bike bike gear setup and i'm out there biking so slow yeah and kind of grooving out on that slow pace that people are, are wondering if i'm okay <laughs> i need i need some sort of sticker that's like uh you know how they have the stickers on the back of the car that say student drivers oh yeah, yeah i need yeah. a sticker that says student heart driver on this bike <laughs> you love that you know how they like the the stickers that say 3.1 or 26.2 yours should just say your troponin levels for your <laughs> for your heart um yeah i imagine it is a whole vibe you got going because you know you're you're going real easy and you're like bobbing your head and you're sometimes saying woohoo you're basically one of those people that you'll sometimes see like downtown who you're like that person has done a lot of hallucinogens in their life to get to this point. And I'm sure you have too with the, the endorphins of exercise now. The Boulder triathletes were extremely concerned about me. And I, I kind of get it. it. It was a vibe. But that being said, movement is such a gift. Yeah. I think I've just missed that power of movement. I went through this low point with running and we talked about it a couple podcast episodes ago. And I feel like I've largely solved it because mm -hmm. there's something about like, I think I was tying running so closely to performance. But the thing about running is, is it really just boils down to the idea that like, it's about movement. It's yeah. about joy. It's about like getting out there and seeing new things. And I think I've realized that I can do that just at really, really, really <laughs> low heart rates. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've never trained, I've never been patient enough to yeah. train exclusively in zone one and zone two. Right now I'm like only in zone one. <laughs> and as I was out there biking, I was thinking about the concept of MAF training. So MAF training is maximum aerobic function training. Yeah. And I'm doing myocarditis as fuck training, which is basically <laughs> the same thing. It's MAF training, basically the same thing, except my MAF is 120, which is probably the MAF of a 60-year-old. Yeah, it is exactly 60-year-old. So and the MAF formula, theoretically, is 180 minus your age as a cap for most of your activity. So that would put you, you know, around uh, 150 or so. Um, but, you know, the 120 heart rate cap, very different, which is actually very super interesting because as we think about, you know, aerobic training, often we categorize things in these broad spectrums. So we talked in the past about three zone training where zone one is super e is easy under two millimoles lactate, zone two between two and four millimoles, and zone three above that. 
Um, yours is like the very bottom. Yours is like zone 0.3 right now. And that is a part of the aerobic system too. So I'm fascinated to see how this uh, works back as your heart fully heals. I bet this leaves you with a massive array of strength that you've never had before because you're building a part of the aerobic system that you've never built before. And that's very exciting that this could actually be an opportunity, even as it's just joyous movement, that that joyous movement framework might end up being what you do in the base periods in the future too. I'm I'm choosing to believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I loved how you just like took this conversation and randomly started rapping about millimoles. You just started yeah, yeah. shooting them off. And that's, I think that's, that's why I married you. It's great. <laughs> but that being said, I agree. And I think actually in this process, when I was kind of down about running, I started watching all these adventure yeah. YouTube videos. I was down, the, down in our pain cave in the basement doing strength and watching adventure YouTubes and just getting inspired to move for the sake of adventure and to move for the sake of movement. And it's kind of cool that as you do that it also feeds into this low level aerobics like that's not the reason i'm out biking is because it's joyous it's awesome if i view it as training i yeah. think it's just going to kind of hijack my mind because i really can't train right now mm -hmm. but it's cool that this idea of getting out there for adventure also has those the the z1 or the 0.3 z1 <laughs> benefits that you're talking about yeah i mean you know you're you're crushing bitches but just like on slow simmer you know as so we're talking about the crock pot it's like it's a little too low to even eat right now but maybe in the future it'll be really good i do like your adventure video game though it's going pretty strong occasionally i'll come in and you'll just be watching a youtube video that involves like a dog and a bike like <laughs> good job you're finding a lot of really interesting content out there right now there's it's so peaceful actually to <laughs> yeah. watch his adventure i mean i feel like i'm right there alongside these adventures i actually told you it's like david we should do this we should go on <laughs> adventures and make videos purely because i want to go on adventures but yeah. it's kind of i mean it's a chance to, to tell jokes and eat burritos so like I'm all in. But Ryan Van Duzer has these incredible bike packing adventures on YouTube. And his videos are anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour and a half. And a lot of them feature Mira the dog. And so yeah. I'm like all in for it. But I don't know. There's something I think for me, sometimes when I'm feeling like burnt out on running, like bikepacking it feels totally different but also like you're it's still channeling the same adventure vibes and i'm all there for it well yeah i'm so proud of you you're coming back so strongly in terms of your outlook and i love the movement framework so for everyone out there that movement framework i think is so key because yeah we talk about this a lot but i always want to ground it in so i'm currently looking at the mountains outside of boulder and so where i'm looking at right now is four miles away it looks like an infinite distance away. Like I can't conceive of running in that manner um, in a, in a, for it to be healthy for me. Um, and I have a 12 mile run to do right after I get off this podcast. If instead I frame it as, okay, I'm going to go out there and do movement for this period of time. It's so much less daunting. And I think, you know, way more sustainable in terms of approach to it, because on a good day, you know, that, that, that distance looks like it, I can do it in a jiffy um a but jiffy. like in a jiffy yeah. what about a skippy <laughs> exactly but on a bad day uh you might as well tell me to jump to the moon it's like not even conceivable so framing in terms of movement super cool i agree and it's been fascinating to me actually as i watched myself kind of transition into that framework because back when i was running getting out of the car felt pretty daunting yeah. exactly that feeling that you described and often i would get around that by taking like 20 or 30 minutes we would drive to a trailhead and then i would take 20 minutes i would do a bunch of laps around the parking <laughs> lot some dance moves I would go to the bathroom like four or five times. Yeah. All because I had to prep. I mean, it felt daunting to get out there at a higher heart rate. And with this adventure movement, low heart rate framework, I get out of the car and I'm like, it's time to go, guys. <laughs> this is great. I'm ready to go. And it's basically like 100% excitement and 0% daunting. And I think there is like, I think that daunting nature is where we grow as runners. It's yeah. where we grow as athletes. And there's a big 
like, I don't know, a big like healthy thing about like moving beyond that. But it is sometimes nice to get out of the car and be like, I'm not daunted at all. This yeah. is great. And there's in to for everyone, there are training benefits here. So um, we're going to get into Kira D'Amato in a second and her amazing American record in the marathon. But I was looking at some of her training and the broad uh, framework of it is a third of her training was less than 70% of her 5k pace. And another third was 70 to 80% of her 5k pace. Um, so two thirds of her training for her is going to feel very easy and relatively slow. Um, so, you know, the question is how slow can you go? I think what we've seen in coaching is that you can basically not go too slow. Um, there is, there are some limits that we'll actually get into in a science corner eventually. Um, but I can't wait to see where this takes you. It's going to be so fun that, that jamming out, uh, hallucinogenic style biking you're doing is going to lead to some wildly fun places I bet. Oh, thank you. And for now it's taking me to the mountains. Yeah, I yeah. like, I clearly have way too much stoke on that, but I'm embracing it. And then do you want to go into a few follow-up points from prior podcast episodes? Let's do it. So, okay. Last podcast episode, we opened the podcast talking about emails being daunting as well. Yes. I sent like a hundred, the, the last two weeks coming out of the holidays, bonkers, bonkers nuts for me. Yeah. I mean, my schedule has been like unbelievably crazy. This week looks a little better, but I sent so many emails yeah. and it actually made me, we had this conversation this weekend that was pretty transformative for me about emails. So you said to me, Megan, like, I just don't open emails on my phone. And I had never conceived of that <laughs> as a possibility. Yeah. Well, my big thing is unless I can take an action, if I think about it at all, it is negative for me. And so I can't prevent my brain from thinking about things that I might have messed up theoretically at some point in the past and will mess up in the future. Uh, but emails is a great example of one place that I will ruminate so freaking hard if I ever check it and don't immediately respond. So for me, it's like, if I only check emails when I know I can respond to that email, um, I don't even like table them for later because that just turns my brain down these negative thought processes and cycles where I start to worry about things that aren't even said in the email. It's terrible. Well, the reason we started having this discussion is a couple weekends ago, I went for a hike with Addie yeah. and it was such a fun hike. It was one of those like magical airplane arm sorts of hikes in the snow up on Green Mountain and Boulder. And I get back to my car and miraculously had service on top of Flagstaff. <laughs> so I was like, oh, great. I can check my email on a Sunday. And an email had come through and it wasn't a bad email, but I mean, it was a very nice email. Yeah, it was a pretty shitty email. Yeah, it was fine. But it involved a <laughs> lot of work for yeah. me in the coming in the coming week and the entire drive down Flagstaff which is about a 30 minute drive back to our house from the from the top up there I was just thinking about this email and not about the great hike I had <laughs> just done and I think that was the tipping point for me that was like I need to stage an email intervention in my life <laughs> and it actually makes me think of the healthcare system so in yeah. the healthcare system we only order tests for patients or we only do these diagnostic tests when it actually serves a purpose like when you can actually do something about it when you can treat it when you can yeah. medicate it or when it informs something that you need to know about about the patient. And I think so often I'm just checking email constantly. That is like the equivalent of doing daily lab draws on a patient that doesn't need it, that yeah. is not going to inform that it's not going to, you know, or even hourly. I mean, I check my email like every 30 minutes. <laughs> and so I, there just becomes a point at which it's actually just not productive. Yeah. It's, it's good to take a step back from, it actually reminds me of a tweet I saw this morning, which is, uh, you know, me colon, um, no worries either way. And then me thinking, major worries both ways. Um, and the idea being that like, whenever you open yourself up to these things, it can be a heavy weight. And like, I think we're carrying enough weight. So that's the big, that's the big message here. Uh, take emails off your phone if you can at all. Like, unless you're going to respond to them on your phone, which probably isn't a great thing to do anyway, because you can't really do that much substantive with a little sent from iPhone tab. So 
I think that that's a good a good framework in general. I think the only positive and constructive thing I do is send an email from my phone that says, I will respond in full detail later. I see this as urgent <laughs> and immediate. And that's actually, that's probably not productive either. Yeah, yeah. I love to be, I mean, I think listeners might know that I'm pretty fast with email responses, but that's only when I'm at my computer. Like, so you're getting actually a, uh, a hint, a carbon dating into when my butt is in the seat right next to my computer. Um, yeah, we've also gotten a lot of emails about poetry because I think we might've like, well, I don't know exactly how it happened. Did I talk shit about poetry? No, the context was, so I think two podcast episodes ago, I said, I just, I struggle to understand poetry. Yeah. Like I love, I want to love poetry. Like clearly it's a beautiful art form, but I think, and actually poetry is evolving into a different direction these days. I feel like a lot of things, like poetry I think is becoming more accessible to the yeah. common person. And I feel that, but I have just struggled to connect and to understand and <laughs> I want to. And actually, so one of my athletes um, who listens to this podcast sent me um, on being.org is a, it's basically a poetry form. So they feature a lot of poets, but they also have poetry podcasts. They break down poetry. They share poetry. And I went to the website and my mind just kind of had these like magical sparkles going on <laughs> because I was like, I feel like for the first time I understand poetry a little bit better. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, yeah, I wonder what it is that makes our brains not necessarily resonate with poetry at baseline. Maybe it's just how we were introduced and what we conceive of it in like a narrow framework for what poetry actually is. So it seems like you're scope has been broadened by this experience. It has been broadened. I read this poem by Marilyn, um, by Marilyn Nelson that I wanted to share. And she's, she's 75. She's had numerous poetry prizes. She's actually a professor emeritus in English at UConn and won the Robert Frost medal. So she's, she's got like the credentials. She's the baddest boss. Yes, exactly. Uh, and this is, this is her poet poem and it's beautiful. She says, approaching 70, she learns to live at last. She realizes she has not accomplished half of what she struggled for, that she surrendered too many battles and seldom celebrated those she won. Approaching 70, she learns to live without ambition, a calm lake face, not a train bound for success and glory. For the first time, she relaxes her hands on the controls, leans back to watch the coming end. Asked, she'll tell you her life is made out of things she didn't do, as much as the things she did do. Did she sing a love song? Approaching 70, she learns to live without wanting much more than the light in the catbird window seat where, watching the, the voracious fist-sized tweets she hums along. And I think that's, there's like a lot of what we've talked about in here encapsulated in one poem. Yeah. The idea of like relaxing your hands on the controls and just leaning back to watch the coming end. And I think we've talked on here, the idea that like, so often that comes at the end of life. But how do you have that like relaxed nature on the controls when you're 30 and you have like all this, like <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I have so much like motivation angst. And how do you kind of like combine the two of those? Yeah, that perspective is so beautiful that she's like taking a look at her life. Though I do think it's funny that she says um, the light in the catbird window where sit, uh, seat where watching the voracious fist-sized tweets she hums along. Um, like anything with tweets is probably not uh, exactly relaxing uh, with how Twitter makes people feel. But yeah, I mean, I think that the reflection on life from the end is one thing that like constantly being grounded in is so helpful. And maybe that's a place where poetry is best to explain because it uh, brings in like illusions and, um, you know, like imagery that people can't really conceive of in normal writing. And actually it makes me think a lot about... Um, like rap, rap music. So I remember Tupac Shakur was famously a, a poet 
in addition to, you know, a rapper. And all rappers end up being poets in a way. Like, you know, Kendrick Lamar is a poet, even though, you know, it's it's done over a beat a lot of times. And uh, perhaps it's just like needing to broaden out my definition away from roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> that would really help me. Well, we had, we had a kind of a mini argument as we were preparing for this podcast yeah. when you're like, Megan, that sounds more like a writing form and not poetry. And I would argue poetry is kind of heading in that direction. And I don't yeah. know, I know nothing about the poetry field. So I don't know how like true poets feel about that evolution. But I think the fact that it's so accessible to humans now just makes it even cooler. Like I think the more that we can boil things down and make things more accessible for the common person, like just it's just more helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think of maybe um, it, poetry was always accessible to the common person, like back, at, you know, in, in, in older times. The common person who did mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe that's a good way to end it. Uh, so some housekeeping notes. Um, we've gotten a few uh, emails about like training plans and things. And we want to mention that there are free training plans online that we've done for everything from the half marathon to the marathon 50K, 50 mile and 100 mile. Um, all of those have a really wide range of miles, everything from, you know, 20 ish miles all the way up to over a hundred miles in the same plan, um, that you could do. So, uh, there's a lot of options out there. If you have anything that you want, like a training plan you want, shoot it our way because we can often turn those into Tron or magazine articles. So it's like a win-win you get a training plan. Other people get a training plan and, uh, we get one of our weekly articles done. Actually, a listener had sent in a request for a 200 mile training plan um, oh, no. for a 200 mile race. And David, we both had the conversation like, we, I don't know, we have interesting thoughts on 200 mile races. I yeah. don't think they're necessarily healthy or great for the body, but we will write you a train. We can write Toronto Magazine training plans for 200 miles. I think, are you saying I should do that? Should I write a 200 I think mile? you should. I mean, I think people are clearly going to do 200 mile races, yeah. whether we like think they're healthy for the body or not. So we might as well like arm the people with the best training plan possible to show up and have a fun experience. I guess it's days. like all things. I mean, it can be healthy for the body. We have some champion, like multi-day athletes that do 200 plus mile races. Um, but yeah, I think just as like a baseline, it feels like a lot. Like it feels like, like if I'm saying four miles seems like a lot, multiply that by 50. Uh, that just seems a little bit scary. I wonder what that does to the endocrine system, for example. Like, I really would love some studies on um, how that treats biomarkers and things over time. Like, I mean, do you, is that, is that possible? Can you do that for me? I mean, I think that's a, it's a totally like N of one approach in terms yeah. of like learning the biomarkers of body. And I think certainly like some people I have seen, and I've heard anecdotal stories of people who run across the U S and don't have any changes in their biomarkers. So yeah. clearly there's humans that can handle this. But I think once you start opening up the 200 mile distance to a lot of different humans, it's like, well, what happens when you start expanding that <laughs> into like, like more and more people doing this. And I think for me also, I would love to just have, have biomarkers for the internal question of why. It's oh, like, yeah. What happens to like what happens to your internal metric of why when you're 100 miles into the 200 mile race? And I don't know. I think I just struggle with that. It's like like going 100 miles is awesome. Going 100 miles fast is one awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Like at what point do we stop and be like we don't need to race 450 miles? Yeah. And maybe you know we're just resisting the unknown. Um. So yeah. But also it does make me worry about how the why then responds to other things in the future. Like what can ring that bell? Um. So we have a friend that says uh, that they don't wear super shoes during workouts. And I, I might have mentioned this before because it kind of feels like sex on MDMA, that they're worried it will never be the same without them. 
which I think is really funny. But maybe that's what 200s are. They're kind of like the sex on MDMA <laughs> yeah. version, where it's like the lesser version will never match it. So, you know, you can't really get fulfillment from a 5K after you finish 200 miles, maybe. I don't know. That's a great point. But that being said, I think you can really, like, in this period of time, in this heart journey that I've had with the myocarditis, I've learned that you can really just, like, taking a prolonged break sets your dopamine levels back at zero. Yeah. So doing anything. So I imagine if someone did a 200-mile race and then didn't race for two or three months, you'd probably get the same, like, satisfaction and joy from racing a 50-mile race. So I think it's about, like, doing these adventures and then making sure to reset your dopamine levels and reset the expectations that you have for training, adventure, life. Yeah, it's a lot like what you're going through right now with mm-hmm. biking being fulfilling when you're putting out, like, for you, very few watts and just going out there and woohooing and bobbing your head to, like, whatever song is in your head. And getting passed by everyone and their mom, dad, aunt, geriatric dog, uncle, <laughs> et cetera. I got passed by everyone out there on Sunday, but it was still so great. And I think just a reminder about like the power. I mean, I was forced to reset my dopamine levels and it was kind of a rough few weeks, but I'm actually, I look back now and I'm, I'm grateful for that because it just, I mean, I think it reset my brain, my expectations, like the power of movement and adventure. Yeah. And the reset is the absolutely perfect segue to our scientific study of the week, um, which is on the epigenetic memory of prior adaptation in skeletal muscle, which all gets to the science of how resets aren't just for the brain and psychology, also for the physiology and the unique nuances of how the body can work in these uh, long-term cycles that we don't truly understand, but we're starting to get a little bit more of a handle on. I love the sexy science of the week. So you sent it to me. I think you sent this to me on Sunday and I was like, this has to be the sexy science (laughs) profile this week because I mean, I think there's just a lot of parallels there, but it also comes back um, or comes off of an exciting weekend. So this weekend at Houston, Kira D'Amato set the American record in the marathon and Sarah Hall set the American record in the half marathon. And I think it just is a fun reflection of looking at those two athletes and how their careers have differed yeah. but how they've both ended up at this similarly amazing place. Yeah, and I think Kira's story in particular is fascinating in this context. So she was a great runner in college and you know immensely talented. What was her? She was at NCAAs, right? So she, she was sixth um, in the NCAA um, Division One Cross Country Championships, which yeah. I think anyone who finishes in the top 20 of the NCAA Cross Country Championships, immense talent. Yeah, it yeah. takes an immense level of talent that usually indicates those athletes are going to go on and have this like reservoir of talent that can be used at the professional level. Yeah, you can do anything in the, in the world of sport after that because it just it's a level that is uh, pretty wild to comprehend when you understand the types of workouts that entails and also how everyone is kind of doing that at that level so it's this big pressure cooker where you're distilling down you're distilling away training philosophy necessarily because every team is kind of training similarly and training very hard so you take a ton of talented people put them into a pressure cooker and the ones that do come out on top are usually the most talented of the most talented, at least at that moment in time. And that's the kind of fascinating element here is the time element. So, you know, when we're talking about NCAA, we're looking at a very narrow scope and window into someone's athletic life. There's un- there's theoretically a huge reservoir of talent beyond that that takes time to uh, unfold. And Kira's story evolving from there is a fascinating look at that. Um, and, you know, just like what happened after her college journey. So after her college journey, she took a pretty non-traditional approach. So she got into professional running, had some foot issues, was going to get surgery, wound up not having the insurance to cover it, didn't yeah. get surgery, and then took seven years off of running. And that being said, I don't know what off means. I don't yeah. know if off was like running five miles around the block or running 10 miles around the block or just purely doing nothing. But in that time, she was a professional realtor. She had two kids. She got married. And then in 2017, she just decided to pick up running for fun again. Yeah. Um, she ran a 314 marathon just seven months after giving birth. And then from 2017, flash forward to Sunday, where she went from a 314 marathon all the way down to the American record 219 marathon. Oh that God. is a 
bonkers progression. One thing that's really cool about her is I think she was on like the Today Show or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they're like, when did you decide to stop running just for fun? And she's like, oh, I still run for fun. And I think that that's a perfect perspective. And, you know, the at least the perspective we see publicly, we don't know her personally, uh, is one of such joy in the process and inclusivity to everyone in the running community that speed doesn't, isn't what determines worth and all these other things that are so beautiful. Um, but, you know, it's just a fascinating scientific question. What allows an athlete that is talented, but not like the greatest that's ever lived, it's not like she just immediately stepped into the ways and won it, um, to take then seven years off, come back and not just come back strong, come back at a level that is mind blowing. This 219 marathon, as great as her NCAA performance was, this is like six levels above that. This is just such a high level. Um, and I think that it must involve not just psychology, not just training theory, but the most interesting nuances of how our cells develop over time. It must involve genetics because whenever yes. we talk about science on here, usually we try to throw in some genetics because to me, it's, I mean, I'm so curious about that field. I'm so curious how it interacts with literally every single thing we do. But actually, before we dive into that, yeah. to contrast though, so Sarah Hall also set the American record on Sunday in the half marathon. Her, her career, widely different. So her career I mean, she's been a incredibly consistent athlete. Yeah. I, I feel like that every year I see Sarah Hall racing, showing up, having great races. <laughs> racing like every month, basically. It's, yeah. I mean, racing marathons, racing half marathons constantly. Yeah. And then she also, I mean, she adopted a family. Um, she has a beautiful family that she adopted. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's just curious to contrast the two in totally different approaches and ended up at the same point. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to pursue athletic uh, potential. And I think that that's liberating in some ways because often we feel like, oh man, if I don't just push through or if I don't take an off season, um, you know, either way I'm ruined. And, you know, the point being like, there are success stories in every direction and that can be extremely hopeful, especially in the context of Kira, when we're thinking about success stories when breaks are included. So we've talked in the past about how downtime can lead to breakthroughs and some of the theories for that. In that discussion, we briefly mentioned the theory or the general under understanding that epigenetics could play a role. But we didn't really know how, I don't think anyone knows how, until this study came out in August 2021 in the Function Journal. Um, and it, it looks at this question of what happens in a detraining cycle, how are these adaptations held, and how do athletes actually bounce back from them? And as a quick caveat, you mentioned the idea that we're starting to understand how. I think we still have a ways to go. So yeah. this study was done in mice, and it takes a lot to translate mice studies into humans and to really make that leap. And I think it's going to take, I mean, we've unraveled some of these epigenetic paths but there's certainly thousands more to yeah. unravel. And I like that the study kind of points us in the direction and starts that conversation. And they do so in a way, I mean, I was reading this article and I feel like the way that they trained these mice have <laughs> a lot of like broader applications for the way that we train humans. And I'm all about it. Yeah. If there's any mice listening to this and you want a training plan, we can also give you one of those. We can put a free mouse training plan online after reading the study. The, the 200 mile mouse training plan. We can do it. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a lot of wheel running. I'm sure that mice in our house fueled off energy gels are ready. Um, so the basic study protocol was that um, adult adult mice did eight weeks of, quote, power training, P, lowercase o, W, lowercase e, R training, which meant progressive weighted wheel running. So this is a very cool acronym. I love that they gave their mouse training system a cool acronym. Like it feels very excessive. So I've seen mice running studies before, and I've never seen anything with 
like a weighted running wheel yeah. before. And to me, can you imagine like how frustrated the mice make when they get on this this running wheel? I feel like it's kind of like riding a bike where uh, the brake is rubbing or like something yeah. like that. The rear tire is flat, and you're like, why am I going so slow? Only to realize that some some scientific noobs hijacked your training wheel. And so I, I would love to understand the mice's perspective on this. Like, yeah. why are we running on weighted training wheels? Yeah, it reminds me of like in running every single time I have one of the you know those hard days where you're not returning any power. I'm like, these shoes are dead. It's like. David, you just got those shoes like you've only ran 30 miles in them. Well, this is just a defective pair. <laughs> That's how the mice must have felt running on their weighted uh, wheels. Um, so they you know, do this eight weeks of training and it was progressive and it increased. Um, and then after the eight weeks, they detrained for 12 weeks. Um, and there were untrained control mice that were age matched. Um, and so that's a really interesting protocol. And then after that, they started reintroducing training for the trained mice and they looked at changes in their musculature and in the nuclei of cells throughout this process. And what I find curious about that protocol is when I first read it, I was like, oh, 12 weeks. That's like nearly what I'm going through with my myocarditis. Yeah. Like that's not that long. But actually when you look at a, a mouse lifespan, the murine, the murine lifespan, um, 12 weeks is like 10% of yeah. the mouse's lifespan. So, I mean, Kira D'Amato, that's more akin to Kira D'Amato taking seven years off than humans taking 12 weeks off. Yeah, oh, you know, far less than what, what, or far more than what Kira did in terms of um, time off. And so the, the basic findings of this is that there were fundamental changes in the nuclei of skeletal muscle cells, um, and that those changes then persisted so that when the mice came back to training, they were able to rapidly regain their fitness. Um, mice fitness is just a funny thing to talk about. Um, but that mirrors a lot of what we see in overarching training theory, that when an athlete comes back, there it's so much easier to get back to the level they were, and often far beyond that level. Um, and the epigenetic role there is really interesting and not really an area I understand too deeply. So can you walk me through it on like a simple basic David level of epigenetics? Yes. I mean, it's hard to make epigenetics basic, yeah. to be honest with you, but I can kind of go through the overall principles and geneticists out there are probably cringing at how basic this is, but it's it really underscores the general principle. So in epigenetics, the idea is that you often like methylate different regions of genes yeah. and that allows... So the the principle in this study was that they had these elements of hypermethylation or so adding more methyl groups versus hypomethylation or taking those off. And as you do that, especially in the promoter regions of genes, it allows you. So hypermethylation is generally thought that when you're adding those groups, you're turning off the genes yeah. and hypomethylation allows you to turn on the genes more regularly. And so I, that's a complicated way to explain it, but how I like to think about it is the idea that you're refining and you're targeting your overall transcriptional response. You're targeting the response that you're having from genetics and you're making that pathway more refined and more efficient. Yeah. So essentially that by doing exercise training, we're allowing our genetic pathways to become more efficient and more streamlined. And that creates this sort of like muscle memory that we're talking about. That's so interesting. And what's fascinating about that when you say that is that there's on and off switches, both of which can add to efficiency. Yeah. So like I've always thought of epigenetics as on switches and you're just trying to turn switches on. Um, but you're also trying to turn switches that aren't helping you off. Like, you know, I'm sure there's things that counter endurance that you don't want on that then you need to, you know, I guess hypermethylate or whatever. Um, the idea doesn't really matter. Um, this is super good for me because often, you know, you've always made fun of me for saying, angiogenesis for capillaries. I often just say epigenetics for long-term adaptation. We do not understand. Um, but you know, with these methyl groups and how that interacts with these 
you know, weakly understood, you know, gene SNPs, it makes sense that these mice are essentially both turning on and turning off things that then make them better on these little mice Zwift wheels. <laughs> I really appreciate that you highlight that because when I think about fitness, I'm the sort of personality that's like, oh, we're just going to turn everything on. <laughs> and it's interesting how you actually, you, I mean, you have to turn some things on and turn some things off to make it more efficient and regulated. And when I dive into the science, actually, my brain likes to think about that. And yeah. it's cool when you're out there, like I'm out there on the bike thinking about the idea that I'm just like making my pathways more efficient one pedal stroke at a time. And <laughs> it's, I think it's, a fun way to conceptualize exercise from that scientific perspective. Yeah. And, you know, with these mice, uh, they bounced back from detraining and were just super mice, uh, little Lance Armstrong mice very rapidly. Um, and the big takeaway here is that, um, and I'm actually reading from the, the, the study conclusion, muscle nuclei have a methylation epimemory of prior training that may augment muscle adaptability to retraining. And methylation epimemory is essentially what we're saying. Um, though, you know, it's not like a memory as in the brain, consciously remembering something and programming it. It's just these chemical groups and these the pathways. Pattern, yeah. yeah, the pathway, the pathways by which these chemical groups form that then can persist. Um, and I think this is actually to ground it in another story. So, well, first Kira, like we can imagine that, you know, all of her training that she did when young and her specific levels of talent combined so that she's essentially the super mouse that comes back from her break stronger than ever for a, you know, person that might be in the middle bell, bell curve or the low end of the bell curve, those same processes are still working. So, you know, whenever you train, it is producing benefits long into the future, even if you have to take breaks in the meantime. Um, we see that often for athletes after pregnancy, for example, coming back stronger than ever or long-term injury, or, you know, even things as terrible as heart issues. I mean, all of it can lead to progress. I discuss this principle often when I have an athlete, they get very fit and then something happens, like whether yeah. it's injury or illness, or they have to take a, a prolonged period of time off. It's like, know that because you got to that super fit level, it means it's going to be that much easier to get back there. Yeah. And then perhaps we're even going to leapfrog off of that and rebound above even where you were. And I think that's something, especially when you see it highlighted in epigenetics, it's helpful. Like when you have to take a break, it's not easy. Yeah. And I think being able to grasp your mind around that, especially for me, has been just pretty paramount in this period of time off. Yeah. And it's so weird to think about how this stuff actually all works. So, you know, these mice were doing a specific type of training regimen, but it works for all of us. I mean, so, you know, I've talked a lot about being like a stronger guy when I went to college. Like I was able to bench press 225 pounds 12 times, which I always remember because now maybe I could bench press 110. Maybe. I mean, it, it's tough to know. Um, and the point being that there was a fundamental shift in how my body functioned. Um, but for the first four years after I transitioned to endurance sports from like weightlifting and stuff, um, I couldn't touch a weight. Like if I got, if I even sniffed like a lifting up a book bag or something, I would gain muscle. Um, and now that has shifted. Now I can do chin ups and things and don't put on like, you know, the type of muscle that would be like counteractive or counterproductive for running, which is like the big bench pressing style muscle. Um, so, you know, that, but that took a long time that took like four years. And so there's probably some inertia in these systems that we are, uh, we're working with where any amount of training can really add to the pot and detraining is just a short-term blip. Like you can always come back from that detraining relatively rapidly. Um, so gaining it the first time really hard, gaining it back, never going to be that hard. And we can all take hope in that, that any layoff we do have to take 
could just be a springboard toward the future. I feel that too, actually, as a former field hockey player, I used to do a lot of lifting. Like our, our um, high school and college trajectories were really similar in the amount of weightlifting we did <laughs> yeah. and protein shakes we consumed, which is, I mean, kind of rare as runners. Yeah. And to this day, like I do yoga and I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gaining field hockey muscles back again. <laughs> this is weird. And that's not a classic response to yoga, but again, it's deeply ingrained in my muscle memory and it's persisted probably for several years. Yeah. And it's just, a, I think this whole study of epigenetics is exceedingly exciting. So with Whatever you're doing now, it's playing for the long-term future. So be like those super mice and just put yourself out there. And don't worry if you have to take a little bit of downtime, whether that's for you know life getting in the way or things like pregnancy or things like burning out or whatever. Like All of that can be productive, especially when you start to incorporate it with things like the endocrine system. And epigenetics isn't just direct aerobic fitness. It's also everything else uh, that goes into you know what makes an athlete. Like Epigenetics probably applies even to how our brain functions in, on some levels. So uh, it, it just creates this really exciting stew to give our vocab word another stew. Oh, we're just keeping the stew rolling on these podcasts. <laughs> also, final learning point from this. If running feels atrocious and terrible and slow, make sure to check your proverbial running wheel to make sure the universe <laughs> powers that be haven't just weighted it all yeah, the yeah. I see that often in athletes, whether that's like their GPS watch that's wrong, whether it's their shoes that are old or some, something like random interfering with the process or a treadmill that's faulty. So just... Just make sure you check it. I love it. Um, okay, so slight transition. Um, and I, I this was a quote that I heard on a podcast from one of my favorite comedians, Moshe Kasher. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. I didn't go back and listen to the exact one. And it was just said in passing, not a thought he had thought deeply about. But it was basically... To be good at sex, you either need to be dumb or confident. Okay, that's a deep thought. Yes. I like that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, and I've seen that too. So, I mean, he's talking about sex. Yeah. I see that in sports. I see that in a lot of different arenas in life. Yeah, I think that basically applies to everything that has a performative aspect, right? Where it's not just like rote memorization or an Excel document. I mean, the reason that this resonated with me was thinking about like public speaking. Or I specifically remember playing baseball. And as the pitcher was throwing, so in batting practice, I was a beast. It was like I could hit so many home runs. In games, I only hit one home run in my entire senior year, and that was just lucky. And the reason is because I remember specifically thinking as a pitcher was throwing, I'm hitting a baseball right now. <laughs> and that's not good. I was definitely in my head. I was not playing that game of dumb or confident well. I was both unconfident and not dumb enough to make up for it. Um, and so I think the idea here is that we all need to cultivate a little bit of like this ignorance about what we're doing, along with this like confidence and swagger about what we're doing. And if you can do both, sky's the freaking limit. Um, but it's something we I have to work on all the time is, uh, you know, embracing the not overthinking part of, you know, being an athlete or being a speaker or being anything. And I personally think too, that that confidence should come with an asterisk. Yeah. So for me, my baseline level, I have never been super confident. I think back to kindergarten, not confident into walking in the front door of kindergarten, really not confident across a wide variety of situations. But I think I'm, I'm such, I don't know if it's that I'm an empath or what it is, but I think I often rely on like a team environment or a yeah. partnership or other people or like the situation in a room to be confident. Like I think about public speaking, if there is a kind and welcoming and inviting like aura in the room in which I'm presenting, I, I can carry that level of confidence. I think about it with field hockey. So um, my senior year, like all throughout high school, yeah. I was a confident field hockey player and I played on one of the best, actually we, we were probably arguably the best club team Yeah, you were from what I've read in the nation. And I think I had a confidence level that if I, if I struggled in a game, my teammates were there to pick me up And in college had a very, I mean, our, our, our team was successful. Like we went on to the final four before I got there and it was a successful field hockey team, but 
it became pretty dysfunctional over time. We had yeah. coaching changes, like all kinds of things were happening. And I felt like I lost confidence in myself as a player as the team unit itself became less cohesive. And I think it's just, it's curious to think about like leadership or team development or even like partnership development, like yeah. how you are in partnership to build that confidence that an individual needs. Like and, I, I rely on that so heavily. And how you support others. If anyone heard a crash that just happened while she, Megan was talking, that's because she gesticulates wildly with her arms while <laughs> While she's talking about this stuff and actually what she hit was a woohoo deodorant anti and anti chafe stick uh, which is pretty cool. I like that. Actually, a podcast listener and a PT and strength coach in Boulder, Sarah Chesson, sent that to me yeah. as a Christmas gift. It's Woohoo deodorant and it's uh, it's aluminum free. It's It smells delicious. Do you think it works for I you? Do, I actually do. Wait, wait, for you? I think this is the first aluminum free deodorant that has worked for me. And I'm putting to it wow. to a solid test right now. So you can you can give the, the listeners judge. an update after okay. after we finish recording this well, segment. Your armpits have solid duende. They bring the passion. Uh, so... I'm a little skeptical of that woohoo uh, deodorant, but it does have a beautiful uh, coating. My armpits are very confident. It's <laughs> yeah. the only part of my body, including my eyebrows, that are ever confident um, and confident outside of that team setting. Yeah. So, I mean, I love how thinking about this in terms of how you support others, for example, it's like, um, you know, other people, I mean, no one listening, like no one is dumb, right? Like that's not what we're saying is that like not being smart is the goal or anything that, you know, anyone is, but the point being cultivating some like willful ignorance about what you're actually doing and what you're might even possibly be capable of goes hand in hand with developing the swagger, whether that's individually or as a group that lets you achieve like the great things you're capable of. So, you know, that's one reason that in coaching, we are all about that swag life. You know, like when we say shoot your shot, we're saying that with the understanding that like most shots don't go in. And for some people, almost no shots go in, but we still want you posing like <laughs> with your hand up as if that shot's going in every time. And the idea is that like that, that uh, openness, that freeness helps take off some of the pressure that then just, you know, pressure erodes confidence, like for anyone, um, you know, so responding to pressure, you know, we're all going to feel that pressure, but not responding to it with anxiety, responding to it with a little shimmy instead. Ooh, a little shimmy. I think yeah. that's largely how you've taken the pressure off. Like, I don't know. I think you've done that for me in our relationship. And it's something that I'm so grateful for. I mean, I, I fast forward to 11 years ago when we weren't together and my confidence levels were so much lower yeah. and it takes having the support system and your love. That's, it's a superpower. And I think the more that we can give it, I mean, it doesn't have to be a romantic love. You can give that to like, you know, your friends or people you coach or other work relationships. And I don't know, I think it's, it's the greatest gift you can give someone, no. especially and someone like me. And I, I think a lot of people, I mean, I think it's rare to have someone who's a hundred percent confident and perhaps even a, a personality flaw. If you had 100% confidence, probably not great at absorbing like empathy and thinking yeah. about like all of these different emotions that go alongside it. So it's just such a gift to give to other yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, that's why someone maybe like Michael Jordan becomes such a, like almost prickly kind of bad person at times is because to develop that like pure confidence in a purely self-driven way you have to just be like you know i am god's gift like and that's kind of what lance armstrong does too if you look at his history like he probably developed that as at young when he was young in such a way that made him like a caustic individual and there's a way to do that without uh you know st 
reaching that point. Um, but it, I, w- I would argue there, though, I don't know if if Michael Jordan or Lance Armstrong, as you're construing, are bad people. I just think it's like, I think when you have that personality that comes with 100% confidence, you just purely cannot see the other that's side. A good point. And I don't think it makes them a bad person. I think it's just, it's a, I mean, one of the greatest gifts that they have for athletic nature also makes it really challenging to be a human at yeah. times. Yeah, like, that, that element of being human is what makes us less confident. And it's also the gift that makes us like, I don't know, that makes us better as people. That makes us want to do good. That's brilliant. I think you are <laughs> empathetic. And maybe that's a, that's actually a really great reflection. I don't think anyone necessarily is a bad person at baseline. Like we can make bad decisions. So we're going to get into some of that, but like let go of anything that makes you feel bad. Um, so a, a story on this topic is Tyler Matzek of the Atlanta Braves. Um, he has a fascinating uh, backstory. So much like Kira D'Amato, he was an elite prospect um, and he was just playing catch in 2015. So just with his uh, with a catcher, um, totally no pressure situation, just throwing the ball as any uh, kid in their kid in their parent might. Um, and all of a sudden he developed the yips. Um, and this is this is the quote. It started slowly. It always does. A game of catch with teammate Chad Bettis there at the Rocky Spring Training Facility. Low pressure, no stakes, just the ball moving through the air and into a glove, into a throwing hand, and back into the air again. But then, he remembers, one throw spiked straight into the ground. Another sailed far over Bettis's head, and then another, and another and another. Bettis told him it was fine. He didn't mind chasing down wayward throws. Matzik nodded. He kept throwing, but he wondered. Do I have the yips? The yips. I feel like we've we talked about here before on the podcast the idea that even saying the yips, yeah, it's such. I mean, I think it's really akin to the Harry Potter series. And David, you're not going to get this reference because it's no. about time you read the Harry Potter series. But there was a, a long period in, in Harry Potter where they wouldn't say Voldemort, yeah. and Dumbledore came back and was like, "By not saying Voldemort, you're giving Voldemort that power that like he doesn't deserve." And same goes with saying the yips. By by not talking about the yips, it allows those intrusive thoughts to take hold of someone and to really become scary when talking about it is the yeah. only way through it you know who my favorite character is speedlebum you know <laughs> i'm just like naming random things from harry potter like no I, I feel like they're all just made up names is what you're saying you're just like making shit I, up i started you i was like david i don't know speedlebum i got scared there you my heart rate just went to 120 <laughs> i was into it way before you were um so uh to back backstory a little bit on this sports psychologist uh Patrick Cohn talked about that um, yips happen in the wake of trauma, often personal or professional. So it doesn't have to be trauma in the sense of like childhood trauma or anything uh, in stress that then ingrains these patterns that become uncontrollable. So, um, you know, this just happened during a game of catch, the most simple behavior you could possibly do. And he started to think about, okay, why did I just throw that ball into the ground? The answer is I just messed up on one throw. Like, you know, that happens in life. Sometimes you just like hold onto the ball for a second too long because your brain goes a little haywire. Um, But in this situation, he kept thinking about it and fight or flight or freeze became freeze every single time. And this became a years long process where he describes saying that he felt like he was at the bottom of a pool coming up for air. But then when you get to the top of the pool, there's a flotation device there. So you're not able to get a breath. And it's like, oh my God, what a great description of anxiety. And you know that by staying so far in his head, he lost all of his confidence and was not able to just get out of that thinking mode. It just became this cycle of thinking and thinking and thinking and throwing the ball into the ground. And it permeated 
dedicated his entire existence. And I can't imagine how challenging that is. And I also can't imagine how challenging that is too, because it comes off the week. So in baseball, historically, the yips haven't been fixed. Yeah. It was kind of like going back into the NBA and we're going to talk about Clay Thompson coming up. It used to be that you ruptured your Achilles and you didn't come back to yeah. the NBA. Like it was very rare for players to come back. And similarly, it used to be that way with the yips. There was actually a famous sports psychologist, um, Harvey Dorfman, that he was asked, how do you fix those guys in terms of those guys referring to people who struggled with the yips? And his response was, those guys don't get fixed. <sighs> and can you imagine how hard it is when the a sports psychologist, someone who is supposed to be instilling belief in you, doesn't even have belief in this entire yeah. process? Like how challenging, I mean, it has to be so challenging for someone with the yips. And I think it takes rethinking sports psychology. Like yeah. we have to hold belief in everyone. And I think that's becoming more and more the framework and people are coming back from the yips. Yeah. And there's a lot of themes here. So like, you know, we talked just a minute ago about the body having this long-term plasticity and ability to adapt. The brain also does. So no matter what you're going through, there's an ability to work through it, um, even if you don't have models for it. And so the great thing here is in, he tried everything and those things didn't work. Um, and eventually he met someone who was a Navy SEAL that worked with people going through this. And I, I love the Navy SEAL's backstory because he himself was a pitcher in the minor leagues who had the yips. Um, and as he was having the first experience with it, and his catcher comes out to the mound as he's thrown like five wild pitches or something. And his catcher's like, hey man, just relax, just relax. And he responds, dude, we are well beyond that, uh, which I think is a great way to describe the Ips in general. It feels so minor from the outside or anything, like any public speaking anxiety. Like It's, it's like, like, just throw, just oh, yeah. speak. Just and speak. You that's, can actually, talk. that's kind of one of the worst things to say to someone who's dealing with that. Just podcast, just sex, whatever you know. the thing is that we're, we're talking about. Um, and the point is, like, we are way beyond that um, because in the, in the middle of it, it just feels so, so deep. Um, and so that the major thing that the Navy SEAL did here is instill a few things. One, relieved him of the narrative, the matzek of the narrative that I am weak. Quote, I am weak. I am weak is the worst narrative to have. If you ever say that, email us immediately because we can tell you that you were the strongest motherfucker alive. Um, number two, facing your fears directly, not burying them, saying the name Voldemort um, or Speedlebum. Um, <laughs> and three, going from freeze mode to fight mode that pushing back with that swagger can be something that is productive. So like every time you throw a wild pitch, instead of being like, ah, oh, what am I doing wrong? Oh no. Be like, I am still a boss. I am a boss because I did that because I tried, you know, because I made myself vulnerable in that courage and vulnerability becomes something that's really powerful. This makes me think about two points. The first being you talked about the idea about the brain being plastic. And yeah. that's one of the reasons I love neuroscience is the brain is so plastic. But I think in order to actually like rewire these things that allow us to throw, to speak, to sex, to podcast, to do all of these things, we first have to believe. Yeah. Like I think the brain is not going to be plastic without that element of belief, or at least as plastic as it could be. But I think also the second point too is talking about harnessing the energy to go into fight mode. Yeah. And I think when your body is experiencing these adrenaline rushes, like, you know, you're sitting here before public speaking, before pitching with shaking hands and sweaty palms and, and fighting it or, and, you know, fighting sweat. Yeah. It's, I think, reframing that as going into fight mode, as opposed to this massive anxiety response that, that um, like pre predisposes you to freeze mode, yeah. I think is something that like, you can just re-harness and re, I don't know, retake that process yeah. and, and, and I'm put it out as fight mode. Nerves are good. Yes. Nerves are the goal. In fact, like what, that is the sign of vulnerability in the goal of sports is vulnerability. So he used meditation and um, therapy and everything else in conjunction with this. And what you got to with belief in from a team is really relevant here. So this Navy SEAL, I wish I had his name. Um, his deal 
So Matzak at the time was living on uh, his mother-in-law's couch. So he had no money. And the Navy was like, just give me 10% of your first contract. That's belief right there. He's like, I'm going to give you all of my time. And in response, I just asked for a little cut of that contract that seems impossible right now. Um, and from that comes to the best story, which is in 2021, Tower Matzak becomes one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. And all of that is embodied in this story from the playoffs this year. An article in The Ringer actually highlighted kind of a great thought progression yeah. from, from Matzak as he was standing on the mound. And the article writes, Matzak remembers standing on the mound thinking, do I be careful with Mookie Betts or not? And just before he threw the pitch that would strike Betts out swinging, before he would scream his way off the mound and into the dugout, reveling in the kind of emotion a younger Matzak would have never indulged, Matzak remembers stepping up for a pitch with a simple thought. Fuck it, he told himself. Let's go. <laughs> How great! I yes. think whenever I whenever I feel that like element of anxiety that I need to yeah. harness that swag so that it becomes this fight response, that's going to be my mantra. Fuck it, let's go. Yeah, yeah. And the mantra of teams, like everything that you're supporting, like all of that. Fuck it, let's go. I mean, you know, because he's doing that, thinking that it's going to go well, but also knowing that it probably won't all the time. I mean, pitching is the nature, like the nature of pitching is like, you can have a great season and still give up home runs to lose games at the key moments. In fact, um, you know, I was remembering this pitcher named Brad Lidge, who used to pitch for the Houston Astros. He was one of the best closers of, of, of all time for a few years and he was pitching against albert pujols was you know at the time for the st louis cardinals and he threw a hanging curveball like which is the the you really it's like you just mess up slightly ball stays a little too high and pujols hit it into orbit for a home run in game six of the nlcs or something and even though houston i like it didn't like end everything for him his career kind of went downhill after that. And the idea being like, no matter who you are as a pitcher, you're going to have those bad moments. No matter who you are as a speaker, a sexer, a podcaster, whatever. <laughs> like it's all just this, you know, amorphous blob of trying to not fully understand why different things happen. A sexer. It, that's a great word. Yeah, also, yeah. I love this is evidence. So podcast listeners can fully understand the nature of our dinner table conversations yeah. where usually once a night, there's some some reference to baseball stats and you're teaching me along the way. So this is this is and other podcast sport, evidence. And yeah. other sports. Yeah, it's and great. Sometimes medieval history or whatever comes to mind. Um, but yeah, like channel that energy. You're going to go through the lowest lows no matter who you are. I mean, we're thinking specifically of some right now for ourselves. And, you know, it, it's just part of the process. And in that, you know, like that is what sports are about. And we'll actually get into a little bit more detail than that. But first, a slight segue into secrets. I wanted, secrets. I wanted to do a fun exercise here. Um, so we're going to try something a little bit different. Um, and we're going to start with an excerpt from the book, A Matter of Death and Life. It's our big recommendation that we've made the last a few weeks ago. Um, but the more I think about this book, the more it just like sticks in my brain with just about everything. Um, but one thing in particular that really resonated with me um, as I've gone and processed the book is how we hold secrets long after the moment of which like they serve any purpose to us and it, and it creates the shame cycle that can be super negative. And I appreciate too how infatuated you are with this book because I, I don't know, I, I recommended it to you. And whenever I recommend a book, I take it very seriously. Like yes. I want it to be, I feel kind of self-conscious, but I want it to be an enjoyable experience for you. And you were reading it. We went to read this weekend in the mountains. And the way you read this was like how I read poetry with my eyes open yeah. for the first time. So go ahead and read this to listeners the way that you did to me on the mountain and get ready for a transformative experience. Yeah. So I'm going to miss like, I'm going to to mix uh, some summary with some excerpts. So the basic summary here is that uh, the Irv, who's the main character of the book, he's in his late 80s, reflecting on his career, was thinking about one patient he had. Who, and he's a psychologist. Psych yes. Or psychiatrist, yeah. Psychiatrist. Um, and she, so her name is Phyllis. 
Phyllis dived in and began describing her traumatic youth. Her father disappeared when she was three. She never heard from again, nor would her mother ever mention his name. Her mother, she said, was a vicious, cold, narcissistic woman. And when one of the many men her brother brotherhood home attempted to abuse her, Phyllis ran away from home at 15, prostituted herself, lived with a series of men, and then miraculously managed to put herself through high school, college, and nursing school. She had worked her entire adult life as a nurse anesthetist. Um, and so flash forwarding just a little bit, um, that was, uh, so in a nutshell, that's my life, she says. Now for the hard part. Some years ago, my sister contacted me to tell me that our mother was in the late stages of lung cancer. She was on oxygen and now comatose in a hospice, hospice unit. She's near death, I remember my sister saying, and I've been here with her these last three nights and I'm at the end of my string. Please, Phyllis, could you come and spend the night with her? She's not conscious. You won't need to talk to her. Um, so Phyllis goes to the hospital room with his mom. She's estranged from, and, um, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. Um, so to, to flash forward just a little bit, I agreed. My sister and I had reconnected some years before and even become having lunch every month or two. I agreed to her request, but did it for my sister, not my mother. I hadn't seen my mother for many decades. And as I've told you, I didn't give a rat's ass about her. And I agreed to sit with her that night only to give my sister some rest. At about three in the morning, I remember it so clearly, like it was yesterday. My mother's breathing grew irregular and stertorous, stertorous? Uh, I don't know if you know that word, Megan. In the, uh, it's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, actually. I need my SA, my SAT skills need revamping. You're, yeah. uh, in the foam of pulmonary edema formed on her lips. I've been through this with so many patients, and I knew her last breath was coming. I was certain of it, and it was coming any minute. And then she paused for several seconds. I've got to tell someone, can I trust you? And this is the money quote. I turned off the oxygen, turned it off just before the last breath. Um, and, you know, basically why she was telling him this is that she had been carrying this secret with her for her entire life. Um, and then she goes on just a second later. I need to tell you that I'm not a murderer. I've sat through the, I, I need you to tell you that I'm a murderer. I've sat through those last moments with many patients, so many patients. She had only one more breath, two at most. Um, and she was just, you know, in this trauma state at the moment. And Irv said, let me tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of that little girl, that helpless, abused, powerless girl, that young girl so subject to fate in the demands and whims of others. How tragic that you had to be the one to witness your mother's last moments and how understandable that you had to claim power. And then this is Irv. Though there were 20 minutes left in our hour, Phyllis gathered up her belongings, stood, put her check on the table, mouth, thank you, and left. I never saw or heard from her again. Wow. I'm sitting here right now with goosebumps from that passage. And I don't know, I have so many thoughts that first come to mind. One is the idea is I can't imagine the weight of shame that Phyllis yeah. was carrying around, shame of that secret, shame of feeling like she was a murderer when in reality she's not. I mean, there was so much wrapped up into that emotion, so much wrapped up into our childhood. But it also makes me think about the idea that she's like fundamentally human yeah. too. And I think like being human is to some level experiencing shame. But I think the, I think it's so important that like in our interactions with each other and in our interactions with ourselves, one that we like share secrets so yeah. we don't carry around that shame, but also that when we're the person like Irv in his situation as a secret listener and yeah. secret absorber and helping someone process their own secrets, like that is a great power in someone's life. And to take that seriously, because like we are all going to carry around these secrets that feel shameful, but yeah. in reality, we should just release them. Yeah. And just cutting people slack is so magical and cutting yourself slack. So, you know, I think that's so powerful because you could argue that she is literally a murderer. Like there is an ethical argument to be made that. Um, and the point being, all of us 
can be murderers in our own heads. So say we all feel like murderers on right. whether it's on like, some level. Yeah, on literal or figurative or whatever. Yeah, some and, some shameful secret we are carrying that might be truly shameful, might be a huge deep secret, like you're you've murdered someone or you've cheated or whatever, or maybe a small secret, like some of the secrets we might might share. Uh, in a minute. Either one, though, you can forgive yourself for and move on. Um, in fact, the Endless Honeymoon podcast, my favorite podcast at the moment, it's a comedy podcast, has this theory about their po- episodes, which they call secret dumps, where listeners just call in and anonymously tell secrets. Uh, the idea is that as you share them, you gain power over them. Um, and Brene Brown has a lot of uh, ta- theories on this topic that apply directly to the things the comedians are doing in that podcast um, that basically s- sum up that shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we are not good enough. And so we carry a lot around a lot of these little secrets that add to the shame bucket. Um, and so we're just trying to use this as like an excuse to let go of some of those shame secrets as much as you possibly can. So, you know, think about them right now, whatever they are, try to let them go. You know, tell us if you want to, like, we're, we're here, we're here to listen like Irv, but whatever it is, like it, you're enough as you are, you're fine, you're good. Even if it's something that is, you know, really deeply hurtful to you, like you're good, you're enough. And this used to be something I used to struggle with in life. Like I think back and I used to have this process of dealing with secrets was that I wrote a lot. Yeah. And so I used to write down my secrets in a journal and I would do so in ways that I was always afraid someone was going to find the journal and <laughs> reveal my secrets. So I had all sorts of code names. I had like code names for the boys I had crushes on. Oh, and no. I, so I went back and read some of my old journals recently and I re- I remembered the code in my head. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's so-and-so. <laughs> and it's funny how I think for me, journaling was like the pre-contemplation step of sharing was yeah. it allowed me to kind of like gather my thoughts and put it together before I was able and especially now more that now that I'm older I'm, I share them more readily and like journaling and writing things down is a really helpful way for me to process first before then going on and sharing yeah that's so powerful and like the it's not just as easy as like hey guys I have this secret because you need to have a listener that's ready to hear it and Brene Brown talks a lot about that too um and you know there's different types of shame, right? Like, so there's really small shames. I was reading a fascinating story this week about the green and blue bubble in iPhone or Android text messages um, that in Gen Z, so the youngest generation in particular, there's a certain shame associated with having a green bubble. Uh, and this article in the Wall Street Journal got into that people would break up with other people because of not having iMessage on iPhone, which seems intense. Also, part of me is like, I kind of get it, which is clearly a bad thing. Um, but the idea being that like, we can have really small shames that amount to nothing in the big scheme of life. Too. I totally get it. I read that article and was like, wow, I've been shaming people yeah. for, I mean, for, for sending me green text messages and I need to stop. <laughs> Actually, my sister recently got engaged to a wonderful guy. Um, he's a great fiance for her. And when he joined the family text message, he was the only person that had an Android user. <laughs> and I remember calling Caroline when she got engaged and I was like, I love everything about him, except he has an Android and he makes our text screen. So I'm guilty of that. And I <laughs> I can stop doing that. But I think it's fascinating how like shame often starts on these small scales and then like it gives it the power to build and to grow into much larger yeah. things. And metastasizes into an identity. Ooh, that's such a good word for it. Oh, thank you. Into like an identity of our lack of, you know, worthiness, um, even little things, but then also big shames. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you have done something you are truly shameful about, like you have cheated or anything along those lines, like you're, you're enough. Like it's okay. Like you get one shot at life and we make mistakes and there isn't, there is a beautiful life beyond this where you fully forgive yourself. Um, and as Brene Brown says, shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it. It can't survive being shared. Shame loves secrecy. When we bury our story, the shame metastasizes. Actually, I guess I stole that from Brene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Darn it. 
<laughs> no longer am I brilliant. I am just a Brene Brown acolyte. Actually, the, the true way to be brilliant is just to, to cite Brene Brown whenever you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the work that she's done on shame has been fascinating. And I think something that's been instructive. So now we're going to do the fun part that we've never done before. Uh, do you want to share a secret that we've never told each other? On the sure, podcast? I would love that. So in preparing for this podcast, and this is how I think I'm so grateful for our relationship because I carry no secrets in our relationship. Yeah. And for, I mean, I think that's actually a good thing. But as we were yesterday, as we were talking about this podcast, I was like, but can't I tell you my secret now? <laughs> like, I really, I really wanted to share with you and held off until today. So we're just going to share two secrets. Kind of, I mean, I think these are at least mine. I don't know what secret you're going to tell me. Uh, mine is like, pretty minor kind of funny but of course we've had much larger secrets in our lives and that, that we, we shared, shared on, we shared on the podcast yeah too. and shared with each other and, and sometimes that, like you share a secret with someone but you don't have to broadcast it to the yeah. entire world and so there's i think there's boundaries with secrets but i think the more you can share the better yeah and i mean you know we sh basically share most probably 99.9% .9 of our secrets on here. Um, these are two, I don't think I might've shared this in the podcast. I don't, I don't even know if I've ever, I don't think I've ever told this one. Great. You go first. Okay. So um, I got very serious about endurance sports, as I said, when I um, quit football. And so, you know, I had staked my identity around it. So at college, like I was known as the guy that did this and it was something that really meant a lot to me. And so, you know, I, I worked hard. I tried to get better, all these things. And I went down to a big race down in Virginia. And so at the time I was doing multi-sport stuff. So this was a duathlon in particular. And it was like the big race. And in my head, this was the biggest race. This would be like, I, I mean, I, there's no equivalent now, but it would be like the World Series to Tower Matzak in my own head at the moment. And whatever happened, everyone was following. It was going to be a huge deal. Probably like anyone feels about maybe their road marathon that all their friends are tracking. And, um, you know, I got on the bike and I was just dying. Like it was so tough. It was so hard. And um, I remember being like, I spent the entire first lap of the bike trying to hit everything that would give me a flat tire. Oh my gosh. Um, which, you know, I think that isn't totally shameful. Like that's normal. No. Um, but then after a while, like I got so down on myself and so wrapped up in self-judgment that I um, stopped and let the air out of my tire. Um, you never told me this. Yeah. I never told you this. And uh, so that I could say I had a flat tire wow. instead of saying that I had a bad race. But I think that feeling about sports and particularly sports that hurt yeah. is entirely universal. Like I remember driving to a race and we talked about this recently on a presentation that we did. We saw a bear. And yeah. in my mind, I was like, how nice would it be to be eaten by that bear oh, right God. now instead of having to run this race? And so I feel like I, I totally empathize and understand like being in that position and just wanting out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're listening to us talk about sports, like this is coming in the context of like, I have learned the hard way that when we talk about shooting your shot and all this other stuff, it's like, it's because it both matters so deeply, but also doesn't matter at all. And so now if that was happening, I would hopefully finish that race. But if I didn't, I would say, tough day, guys, shoot or shoot, and I will be shooting again. Um, but I, I don't think I've ever told anyone that, honestly. So uh, yeah, it, you know, whatever the metaphorical, letting the air out of your tire, just so you don't have to say you're not, you know, quite matching up to your expectations. Uh, if you have anything like that in your life, please immediately let it go. Because I've always thought, does that mean I'm kind of an asshole and, and not at all? Well, <laughs> thank you for, I mean, thank you for sharing and thank you for your vulnerability on that. And also like totally human experience. And it makes me feel better about wanting to get eaten by a bear. So <laughs> I, I also get it. Okay. My, my, yes. my secret, I was probably about age 10 and I've alluded to this on the podcast before a little bit, but I had kind of a rocky relationship in Sunday school at, yeah. at the Catholic church. I, I don't know. I just struggled with the principles of it. I struggled. It felt very dogmatic to me and I refused to speak was the way in which I got around that. And yeah. they were not happy, but essentially in Catholic school, kind of the progression that you do. And I, I'm pretty sure this is the progression, at least how I remember it was you go to reconciliation and then you have 
first Holy Communion. So in reconciliation, you sit with a priest, I think it's in a communal, and you share all the sins that you've done in Wait, your life. How old are you when you're doing this? You're like 10. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, first of all, I was kind of like socially anxious. Yeah. And the idea of sitting with a priest in, you can't see the priest. So there's like a, a black window between you. And I was horrified about this. And rightfully so. Like my parents yeah. instilled a sense of like stranger danger in me for better or for worse. Yeah. And knowing what I do now about the Catholic Church, perhaps oh, that was, God. perhaps that was smart. Also, kids, kids uh, confessing is very interesting. It's like, I slept Play-Doh at my butthole. It's like, who cares? Like, that's not your kid. But I felt, I, this felt like a very loaded experience sure. to me. And I think part of it too was, is we were learning and we were learning principles of the Bible in Sunday school. And one of the big principles in Corinthians is the idea that like sin in a congregation, so in the broader church congregation, can contaminate all the other members. And yeah. so I felt this weight. I was like, wait, these stupid sins that I did are going to contaminate everyone. That's not fair. Oh, no. Like, how problematic is that? And I just felt like there was this messaging that was like, it felt... I just felt overly burdened with my sins. So I got in there and I just made up like 50 different sins. Oh, things no. that had never happened to me before because I was so afraid that if I shared these real sins that they were going to contaminate like the other members of the congregation. Yeah. But then I felt very guilty by the end of that. Yeah. And I was like, actually, sorry, all of the sins I shared are not real. Oh. And then I just kind of had about... I would say like a two minutes where I just went off on the entire experience. I was like, I hate Sunday school. I hate church. I think this process is stupid. In confession. In confession. And then I just got the heck out of there. Oh, no. And that was my last, I think I, I wound up getting First Holy Communion because my grandparents were invested in the process. And that was my last experience in, in church, really. I yeah. mean, sometimes I would go back for like Christmas service, but really my last major experience in church. And I don't know. I think I felt bad on it on many levels about it on many levels, yeah. but I just it was something that I I got in there and panicked. Yeah, like and there was something in my brain that was like this just doesn't it it I mean and religion is an amazing principle for a lot of people, but something about it clearly just didn't work for my brain. It clearly didn't work with the yeah. anxiety that I had mapped onto myself, and that was a secret that I held for many years. And then after that, I imagine it was religion itself that experience is intertwined with the shame of your experience to the point that it is this one and the same which mm -hmm. becomes a big issue i think for a lot of i mean my dad you know grew up going to catholic school and had a lot of those same issues and and it's just interesting like first beautiful you're perfect i love that you did that as a kid it actually shows to me how brilliant you are just make up you're just like hey i know a way to game this system they were entirely stupid too i was like i stole a basketball from my brother when he was sleeping like things yeah, that yeah. were just like astronomically dumb and the i can't imagine what the priest was thinking about yeah. as i was this like young kid in there but I think they're they're also supposed to tell you. I mean, they're supposed to tell you ways in which like you can atone for yeah. your sins. And there's actually just total silence as I went off on the Catholic Church. So I don't I don't I'm not sure if they were like brainstorming ways I could atone or not. <laughs> they're just like too much. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I think a lot of shame is tied up in lying, right? Like because all people lie at some point. Like it, it's just a part of being human that you say things that you don't mean, and you kind of find yourself in those situations where you're going down rabbit holes of like, wait, what? What is my true identity? Am I a liar? Um, and that's, I mean, I think that that as a 10 year old, there's a humor to it, Yes, but yeah. we all have that of things that we are like false confessions. We are making things like that. Like there's a, a genuineness and an ingenuity or an ingenuineness mixed with it in all of us at all times. Actually, here's a whoop study for you. I would be curious to know like the heart rate and adrenaline levels of people who lie. Because when I was a kid, I actually used to lie a fair amount when I was a kid. Yeah. Somewhere sometime around the age like 15. I mean, it was, that's pretty late to stop lying, age 15. But I realized I was like, this is not productive for me. This is going to backfire. But I think I was a pretty anxious and wound up kid. And I think a lot of the, the lying that I did stemmed from a place of anxiety yeah. and a place of like my heart rate being 
being high and just panicking and spitting out words that weren't true. And ultimately, I learned to deal with that anxiety over time. But I'd be curious to know it, like to look at like yeah. the the intermediate like heart rate profiles of people who are lying, like longer term. Yeah, like, he's like a lie detector. No, well, like in the like in the immediate. So I think yeah. in the immediate, like someone panics and they just spit out facts that aren't true. But then also in the long term, and I hold empathy for that because like that process sucks. Yeah. And if you have to lie, that probably means there's a much deeper hurt there that like needs to be investigated. Yeah. Well, it's like a lie detector test. Um, I was just thinking that while you're, uh, um, had been going through the hard things, you're like it, on a lie detector test. You just be like, fail, 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 <laughs> yeah. fail for everything. Well, that's actually true. I mean, lie detector tests look at heart rate yeah. and they look at adrenaline levels. And that's because like, that's what happens when you lie, but also it happens preceding a lie too, I imagine. Oh, so great time to do a whoop promo. Uh, so yeah, if you want to know more about your character, no, I'm just kidding. But if you do want to whoop, we love it. Join.whoop.com slash swap offer code SWAP for a ton uh, off at checkout. We love whoop. Um, maybe it can give you insights into your own personal shame. Is just, that a good ad? Well, I feel like recently we've been coming up with like all these random whoop studies we yeah. could do and this one has we're really stretching it it's like let's look at lying and whoop and see what happens yeah but the, the big takeaway here is you know if you think of the secret you have whatever it is and just try to let it go um and, and if you need someone to tell like you can tell us in all is confidential that you ever send to us through somewhere called play at gmail.com or our personal emails um you're fucking awesome as you are always and try not to let um any shame you're carrying get in the way of that um okay so the thing we're going to end it on is that Sports are beautifully cruel. Uh, the, the idea that sports are cruel is something that like, I think is really important for us to, to dig down on. We talk about this a lot in our own personal lives and on the podcast, um, but man, sports hit hard. They really do. And I think the thing is, is when you're going through this by yourself, like when you're having a tough time in sports, it feels so salient. And like, yeah. you are the only one going through this, but it's truly a universal experience. And David, you actually just wrote a beautiful Toronto Magazine article on this topic. And when you sent it to me to review and to edit, you said, Megan, this is actually just a love letter to you. And <laughs> I was grateful for that because like I, the myocarditis, pericarditis challenge I've had have made sports been a little cruel recently. And I think seeing that this is just a normal part of the process that happens yeah. for everyone has been insightful and helpful and hopefully it gives me a little bit more of a reservoir of empathy for people going through it. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about Clay Thompson before, uh, if you, if you didn't listen to that episode, so he tours ACL 941 days or 950 days ago now. Um, and then on the comeback trail from that tore his Achilles. So, you know, one of the best player basketball players of all time, um, found himself out for three years, essentially just under three years. Um, and so his first game back, uh, happened just a few weeks ago. And what happens in that first game? Like there's all these big narratives, there's all these tough moments. And my favorite response is what Clay did. He took 18 shots in 20 minutes. Um, he shot the first time down the floor. He shot the second time down the floor and he kept freaking shooting. Uh, it wasn't the best game for him, but that didn't matter. His point wasn't that like he was going to make the shots. His point is that he was going to take the shots. And he, yeah, he missed a lot of them and he just kept shooting. Yeah. But I mean, he earned that swag to shoot. I mean, you look back at his career. He's he's the person, he scored 60 points on just 11 dribbles and three quarters. Yeah. Like do the math on that. That means that he's able to catch and shoot and release in a way that's exceedingly productive. Yeah, and I, but I think, what's really cool about this is it's easy to just be like, oh, well, he went through adversity, he came back. But the Clay Thompson journey started way before that with the tools that he had to come back from that. So, um, you know, long before this, he had actually been the Iron Man of basketball where he didn't get injured. And, you know, people talked about, what does he do? He must have a cryogenic chamber to not get injured. This is magical. This is wild. That's what I find instructive about this story, actually. Like, if you looked at all his prior data points, you'd have been like, oh, he's never going to get yeah. injured. And I think that's why sports are especially cruel sometimes. Like, I think back to my situation on my heart. And two months ago, I went out for a run and didn't realize it was going to be 
feetful and instructive and last run for a long time. And I think as basketball players, as runners, as, as athletes, we never know when we're going to show up to a run, a practice, a game, and it's going to be our last one. And I think that's why, like, I mean, I don't mean to say that to like instill a sense of fear in people, but it's an appreciation for what we get to do and what our bodies get to do. But so actually Steph Curry had a quote. Um, So Clay Thompson played a record 214 games consecutively. um, And this was um, one of the largest franchise records um, for the Warriors. And then he had to miss a game in 2014 for his grandfather's funeral and curry said on him it's pretty remarkable maybe clay has his own ice machine in his house i don't know but you definitely notice it when he's in the trainer's room it's kind of unexpected when the other guys come in before a game or practice to get a tune-up but it's very rare when you see clay on the table hopefully the next 100 games come as easy i guess it hasn't been easy but i hope they come as smoothly and he was king smooth yeah. for a long time and you know then his trajectory set off with his achilles and his acl and all of a sudden it flipped. Yeah. And so looking at his story to write this article, I thought what was really interesting is in 2018, long before these injuries um, or the season of these injuries, but um, like 80 games before they happened, he went through a legendary cold snap for him. So he shot over 40% every year of his career. He was shooting 30% from three halfway into the season. It was, it was just a really rough time. And, you know, people were writing about it. There were all these narratives. And uh, the big conclusion that he had is like, this isn't a big deal. And ask why. And he's like, shoot or shoot. And so he just kept shooting and he comes back and he leads the Warriors to the finals. He gets way over 40%. I mean, he went on a historic tear after that. And then in the finals is when he tears his ACL. And so as he's coming back, like, how does he respond in his first game back? Shooters shoot. And he goes out there and, um, you know, is who knows if he'll ever be back to where he was, but that's not the point of sports, not these broad narratives. The point is to shoot and the lessons that that can teach you about a broader life more generally. And we've used the mantra on here of the idea of shooting your shot. I yeah. actually, I mean, I want to cross that out and replace it with the idea of shoot or shoot. Yeah. And that's like, that's like the core part of being an athlete is just getting up there and just continuing to do it irrespective of whether it goes yeah. in. And shoot your shots. Like you have to shoot over and over again. And that's where, you know, last week we briefly mentioned Tyler Fox. So at the Bandera 100K, Tower Fox got a golden ticket. Um, but if you zoom out and just play a little bit of this Clay Thompson game, a few months before at the Run Rabbit Run 100, he DNF'd. If you zoom out five years before, he's had ups, he's had major downs, he's questioned like the, the point of all of this. I mean, just like every athlete has. And all of the highest triumphs are right next to the lowest lows. And that's where the cruelty of sports can come in. You're always a whisper away from disaster, a disaster and a whisper away from your greatest highs. And in the ability to shoot, knowing that not every shot will go in, you can gain this great reservoir of life swag, of the confidence that we're talking about, where it's like, hell yeah, I'm going to shoot, and hell yeah, I'm going to pose, and hell yeah, that didn't go in, but I'm going to shoot next time. Actually, as we're on the topic of Bandera, and then I want to read a quote from your Troner Magazine article, because it it really resonated with me, but um, on the topic of Bandera, what I found instructive about tracking these ultra races is sometimes as an athlete's approaching the last 10 miles of a long ultra, the last five miles, in Jim Walmsley's case, in 2016 at Western States, the last, what was it, four miles of the race, I'm like, oh, that athlete has it in the bag, there's only four miles to go in a 100-mile race, you never know. Yeah. Jim Walmsley made a wrong turn. I was coaching an athlete, Leah Yingling, so fit heading into Bandera in second place in line for a golden ticket and had stomach issues in the last 10 miles of a race. When so I, tragic. I assumed based on the tracker, I was like, she's got it wrapped up. She's yeah. good. She's got a big lead. And it just goes to show like sports, you shoot your shot and sometimes exceedingly cruel, but it's about stepping up and, and doing it again Yeah, because roll the dice with statistics. Probably the shot's going to happen the next time. Yeah. Well, and also if you're Clay Thompson, miss more shots than you make you're still a hall of famer and the idea being that like the point isn't whether the shot goes in the point is freaking taking it and so 
yeah, scared money don't make money. And that's the, the whole idea of sports. And that's why I think sports are magical. And the cruelty of sports is what makes them magical. Um, if without that, it would just be, you know, a video game that doesn't mean much. Um, and that's not, I don't like that. That's not cool. You should have added a colon after the Trowan article and just said, scared money don't make money. That's yeah, the summary yeah. of this article. But can I actually read? I think this is a fantastic piece of writing. Can I read it for the listeners? Uh, go for it. Okay, so you wrote, as Clay said after the game, I'm proud of myself for persevering. He didn't have to do that. Tyler didn't have to do it. None of us have to do it. And that's where sports teach us about so much more than whether a ball goes in a basket or who crosses the finish line a few minutes later. Running is a great place to practice. Choose the scary race. Take the aggressive race tactic. Train harder for the hell of it. Come back from that scary injury. Invest in yourself fully because you have one chance at every passing day. But sports are most meaningful when they're about more than that. Ask for the promotion. Start the business. Write the article with the convoluted thesis. See if they're free for dinner. Take the big chances and get vulnerable every chance you can even when you factually know it's not a Disney movie and it all won't work out in the end. Do that, and dot, 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 a bunch of your shots will still be bricks. It's the unfortunate reality of trying to do difficult things. Like Clay, we can miss more than we make and still be Hall of Famers. The key part is the question that comes next. What's the best way to respond after a miss? I think you know the answer to that question because you are a shooter and shooters shoot. <laughs> well, thank you for reading. And that's the big takeaway of all this is shooters shoot. Shooters don't judge. Shooters don't live in the past where they've missed a ton of shots or in the future where they know they're going to miss a lot more shots. Shooters just live in the present where they're sitting there with their teammates that are supporting them and doing a big old pose and just remembering that it's all about taking the shot, not about making the shot. <laughs> so make sure you're doing that in your athletic life. Um, and do you want to get on to Listener Corner? Let's go to Listener Corner. We promise we'll do side stitches to start the next week's episode. Uh, yeah, we, this has been a, a weekly conversation. Yeah. The listeners want side stitches. <laughs> we are going to prioritize it. It's been a, a little bit of a daily battle between us, if you can understand. So many interesting things happen in the context of a week that we want to talk about. And side stitches are forever. So uh, we will talk about it first thing next week. That'll be like our first topic we do. Let's do Listener Corner. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this Listener Corner is called Twins from L. And actually, we changed the initial on this one just for extra confidentiality. We take HIPAA very seriously here, <laughs> which is why if you need a safe place to send us secrets, like, let us know. Um, we will always change initials on things that... And um, we won't read and We, we won't, won't read, read a secret unless yeah. you tell us to. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, if you tell us it's a secret, we won't read it. Um, and this is from L. Megan joked about how twin studies made her think about the inherent pressure that comes with having a twin. If we have the same genetics, then the differences in what we achieve must be because of stuff we did, right? That's a mental trap I've spent many years trying to escape. It's good to know what I'd look like with a different haircut. But also, I look at her and wonder what would have happened if I work a tiny bit harder in school or gotten into running earlier or whatever. For most people, those questions are totally hypothetical, and there's no answer to it. But for us twins, it's way more real, and it's a total mindfuck sometimes. Looking at her and thinking, why am I not there, is hard to avoid. But it's not a good road to travel. It's like FOMO and steroids. Hmm. I know better, but it also sneaks into my thoughts, especially in inherently competitive stuff like athletics. But what if dot, 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 no. I have to remember that I'm not trying to beat her PR, but my goals based on my training and my mental strength and my history as an athlete. My genome isn't running. I am. This is easy to say, but it's hard to do. Anyways, thanks for making, always bringing the joy and please make, keep making sexy science corner. It always <laughs> makes me laugh and learn at the same time, which is the best kind of multitasking I've discovered so far. Huzzah. Oh, thank you so much, Elle. That I think that that story is so interesting, not just for twins, but for anyone, right? Like we talk about a lot of genetics and you know training and all these different things, but they interact in such complex ways that essentially we're all just kind of throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. And the beautiful part is the throwing of the shit, which is the shooting of the shot, uh, rather than 
what actually sticks. That's all random. That's all dust in the wind. I agree. And that was so beautifully written and articulated. I think my favorite sentence so far to come into listener corner is the sentence, my genome isn't running, comma, I am. Yeah. And like, what beautiful sentence structure. And it's true though. It's the idea that like, we talk about the science, but it's so much more complex than a genome, than muscles, than epigenetics running out there. It's it's humans. And we're, we are exceedingly human as we yeah. do that. And um, I think I'll capture that so beautifully. And just how like evil of a trap comparison actually is because like in the twins it brings it up a lot but when we're talking about secrets for example i think essentially we're comparing ourselves to some unrealistic perfected version of a person that never could exist and you know we all do that in our heads and the idea is like not just comparing to others is something to avoid but comparing to yourself like you're perfect just as you are including all the shit that you might feel really ashamed about with yourself, like whatever that is, uh, right now is the time to drop it. And in your athletic life, whatever you know, discomfort or shame you might have about your own trajectory, now's the time to drop it. Let's just get out there and shoot some damn shots. And not just drop it, but share it. I mean, like journal about it, write about it, talk about it with people, uh, share it openly. We should drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> drop it like it's hot. Okay, we love you all. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, and share, please. That would be really meaningful to us. Um, yeah, it's such a joy to be on this journey with you and you are perfect in every single way. Thank you all. Bye.